Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Lung Cancer, and this is part one of a two-part series of Living with Lung Cancer, and this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. There's actually about 22 just general cancer organizations, and then we do have some lung cancer-specific organizations that I particularly want to call out. One is Free Me from Lung Cancer, the other is Free to Breathe. The other is lungcancer.org, Lung Cancer Alliance, and Longevity. So these are all resources for you um, as, as you wish to get more information about lung cancer. Now today's program um, actually um, has over, 595, uh, over 593 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today. And you come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Israel, the Philippines, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. So you really, it's a bit of a global call with people from all over the world. And uh, we're really delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, now today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today, but also for their uh, corporate collaboration and making this program possible. Now, we have the best speakers on today's program, and I want to go right ahead and, and introduce them. Uh, our first speaker is Dr. Heather Wakeley. Dr. Wakeley is Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Oncology, Stanford University, Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Wakeley is going to present an overview of lung cancer, including current standard of care, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions, chemotherapy, and targeted cancer therapies. It's really my great pleasure to introduce Dr. and turn this program over to Dr. Heather Wakeley. Great. Thank you, Carolyn, and it's uh, wonderful to be on the call. So I've been tasked with giving an overview of lung cancer treatment in under 10 minutes, so uh, that's a tall order. So I'm going to break it up into a few concepts. When someone gets a diagnosis of lung cancer, there are a couple of key questions that we think about. The first one is the stage, uh, the stage being one, two, three, or four. As a medical oncologist, most of the patients I'm seeing have stage four, uh, but it's important that we think about all stages. So stage one and two are smaller tumors that can usually be removed with surgery or sometimes focused radiation therapy. And then with stage three, those are also uh, patients where the tumor is in the lung area and also in some lymph nodes. And the treatments there are usually going to be chemotherapy with radiation and sometimes surgery. When the tumor has reached stage four, that means that it has spread either within the lung or to other parts of the body. And the treatments at that time are usually focused on either chemotherapy or other types of treatment that are going to get throughout the body to treat the, the cancer that way. And so determining the stage up front is really important as it helps us know, are we going to start with surgery? Are we going to start with radiation? Or are we going to move right into chemotherapy and other systemic treatments? Once we've figured that out, 
then we would move on to, to deciding on that treatment. And at most hospitals, there's going to be a tumor board, and patients who have stage 1, 2, or 3 are often discussed at the tumor board to make sure that the, the plan is in place from the very, very beginning. Now, that's constantly evolving as to what's the best treatment plan, and I think uh, Dr. Lee, who speaks after me, will be going through that. At this point, though, for many patients who have early-stage cancer and have had surgery, we will think about chemo, usually after, sometimes before. And the cutting edge now is looking at some of the newer treatments we know about from stage 4 disease, like immune therapy, and figuring out if those can be helpful in earlier stages as well. Now with that, I'm gonna move into patients with stage four or what we call metastatic lung cancer, because again, that's the majority of the patients I'm seeing and the majority of patients with lung cancer. When we're in that setting, the next question we have after stage is, what type of lung cancer is this? Um, and that has to do with how the cells look under the microscope and how they behave in, in people. Um, the biggest division is between what we call small cell and non-small cell, and then within non-small cell, we divide it up further, and I'm not gonna go into all of that, but that helps us in thinking about what's gonna be the right choice at the beginning. If we know that a, a patient has small cell, we start with chemotherapy, uh, usually a combination of two drugs, a platinum drug and a drug called a toposide, um, but there's some variations there. There's a lot happening as far as new treatments in small cell, but we still tend to start with that standard approach and often we'll bring in some radiation as well at, at various stages. For the other types, the non-small cell, it gets a bit more complicated because we have to know more other than just is it adeno or squamous or, you know, or small cell. We have to know about the, the genetic changes that have happened in that tumor, especially for adenocarcinoma. So in this day and age, if there's a new diagnosis of a non-small cell lung cancer, the pathologist is going to be able to tell us that, but then we need more information before we pick the right treatment to start with. And they're really, I, I like to think of it as there's three classes of treatment that we now have for people with metastatic or stage four lung cancer. There's the traditional chemotherapies. There are what we call the targeted or molecularly targeted treatments, and those tend to be pill drugs. And then there's the newest class, which are the immune therapies. When we think about the chemotherapy, that remains a really important part of treatment for most people who have metastatic or stage four lung cancer. It's, it's interesting that there's still this very strong perception that chemotherapy is, is very dangerous or gonna cause a lot of problems. Whereas for most people, chemotherapy actually can, can really have a big impact, an important impact in fighting the cancer. Um, the chemotherapy drugs are usually given by vein they do often cause certain side effects, such as fatigue, sometimes nausea. Many of them do not cause hair loss. That's still a perception that people have, and that they all do. They don't, some do though. Um, and obviously it varies per drug. Um, but for someone who's having symptoms related to their cancer, even though the chemotherapy can have some side effects, in general people feel better when they're on a chemotherapy regimen that's working against the cancer than they were before they got treatment. So I always like to and I've talked about that a little bit because I spend a lot of time in my clinic having to talk people down from the fear that they have of chemo um, and from the perspective that chemotherapy can make a big difference and help a lot of folks with cancer, with lung cancer. So that's what I'm going to say about chemo. 
Um, and that remains the standard. And if we don't find that some other treatment option is better, chemotherapy is the standard at the beginning, and chemotherapy finds its way into the treatment plans for folks further down the road if we start with something else. Now, when I'm talking about what are those other things, those molecularly targeted immune therapy, they're tests that can be done on the tumor tissue, and even sometimes now in blood, to figure out if a different treatment would be the right way to start. So when we're talking about the molecularly targeted, there's specific changes that have happened in the DNA of the tumor that are not in the DNA of the rest of the person that really define the cancer. So some of these specific gene mutations that we look for, there's one called EGFR, another called ALK, ALK, there's one called ROS1, R-O-S1, and then there's a long list of other ones now that we know to look for. And the reason it's important to find them is if we find an EGFR mutation or we find an ALK mutation in the tumor, there are now pill drugs that a patient can take instead of starting with the chemotherapy. And we know in that setting that by taking the pill drug, it's more likely to work quickly and to work for longer than if someone starts with chemo. So it's really important to figure out if one of those specific gene changes is present in the tumor. And those are more common in the lung cancer type known as adenocarcinoma, but can be seen in other types of non-small cell lung cancer also. So it's often worth waiting the week or two to get those results back before jumping into treatment. Now, the biggest changes that have happened recently are around what we call immune-based therapies. And there's a test called PDL1. And PDL1, it's not a gene change, it's just a protein. And it's a protein that's on the surface of a lot of tumors. And it's a way that those tumors can avoid the immune system. So pretend that they're part of the normal, normal cells. And if those levels are high, that means that the tumor is very dependent on that PDL1 pathway to figure to avoid the immune system. And we've now learned that if you test for PDL1 with a special test called 22C3, and that PDL1 level is high, for patients who have that in our tumor, they're actually going to be better off starting with an immune therapy, which is also given IV every three weeks, like most of the chemos, but they can get that instead of chemo and also instead of an, a targeted therapy. Now, rarely we find that someone has a specific gene mutation and also has high PDL1. In those settings, those gene mutations are more important, and we would start with that path. But when there's no specific gene mutation and we have high PDL1, we can start just with immune therapy, give an IV, and that also has a good chance of controlling the cancer for a period of time. And now even more recently, there's a lot of work being done at combining these different types of treatments together. And where things are looking very promising is with chemotherapy plus immune therapy. Um, the FDA actually recently approved that as a possibility for some patients. I think many of us are still a little cautious because the data is not as clear as we usually have before the FDA um, approves something, but it is definitely certainly worth talking about with your physician. So if you are a patient or family members or friends of someone with a newly diagnosed stage 4 lung cancer, it's just important to know that you need to be talking with your doctor and the care team about chemotherapy versus molecularly targeted versus immune therapy and what's going to be the right approach for you to start and then later down the road. Because with all of our treatments, they tend to work for some period of time, and some is obviously not a number that can be defined. It varies quite a bit. And when that first type of treatment stops working, then we can move to the next class and then to the next and then to the next um, and so on to help people continue to live full and active lives with their lung cancer. 
Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over um, as I, our next speaker is going to be focusing on some of the newer treatments as well as on um, the role of clinical trials. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wakeley. That was outstanding as always and also very comprehensive and really sets the stage for the entire program today. And the questions are coming in already, so there will be questions for you and all of the speakers during the Q&A, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Bob Lee, and Bob Lee is a medical oncologist, thoracic oncology service, developmental therapeutics, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Lee will address new treatment approaches, how clinical trials contribute to treatment options, and managing side effects and discomfort. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner and CancerCare for having me uh, be part of the workshop today. So I'm going to talk about new uh, treatment approaches to, uh, to lung cancers as well as clinical trials and the management of side effects. Uh, so when we talk about, when we consider new, any new treatment, um, we need to know what our goals of care are. So as Dr. Wakeley elegantly uh, had, had uh, explained in the initial overview, that the, uh, uh, in the assessment of the stage of lung cancer, we can then formulate uh, a plan of treatment uh, to, to reach uh, the goal of this care, whether the cancer is curable, we go all out, try to cure the cancer and, and get this behind us once for all. Or if the cancer is deemed not curable by today's uh, science, then we, we do everything possible to maximize the survival of uh, our patients and the quality of life of that patient. And we keep pushing the edge uh, towards that uh, goal uh, uh, of, of maximal uh, benefit uh, for patients. So uh, the new treatments are coming in every day. Uh, it's, it's happening around the world. It's a very exciting time to be in oncology. And, um, and Dr. Wakeley had already, already explained that chemotherapy is an integral part of, of care for patients with lung cancers, as well as the newer uh, targeted uh, therapies. I will go into a little bit more detail on the third class of drugs, and that's the immunotherapies. So um, there's been a lot of press on immunotherapies uh, lately with the uh, FDA approval of uh, several immune checkpoint inhibitors um, against PD-1, pd one uh, in lung cancers that's been shown to be uh, very uh, efficacious in prolonging survival and, and inducing some durable responses. So pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, nivolumab, that they've been uh, approved in certain settings in lung cancers. And now there are clinical trials of trying to combine uh, various immunotherapies uh, with other checkpoint inhibitors, with CTLA-4, and also with other immunoagents, including vaccines, including uh, other molecularly targeted agents, and chemotherapy as well. Uh, and the first one with pembrolizumab and chemotherapy has just been uh, FDA approved. Um, now, these new therapies uh, aiming at priming the immune system and activating the patient's own immune system to go and survey and attack the cancers uh, have have been very exciting for us as oncologists because we have seen durable responses that last uh, many, many years. Uh, which is something that was not seen just in the in the recent past. However, they do not work in everyone. They are not a panacea, and and this is in 
uh, a small group of patients. Uh, at the moment, the data stands at 10, 20%, 10%, and depending on, on which uh, population of patients. So we obviously need more work to do to, uh, to bring that benefit to more patients. And also in our refinement of precision medicine in terms of which drug is the right match for which patient, because not all patients are the same. Everyone is unique. Everyone is different. So immunotherapy is not the answer for all patients, obviously. And, uh, and this is where clinical trials really attempt to answer a lot of the questions that are in urgent need where we can, where we can select, uh, when we, we, we need to understand more knowledge to how to select patients and select treatments for, for our very patients in front of us. So uh, here, uh, currently, there are clinical trials looking at, as I mentioned, combination of, of immunotherapies, combination of immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors with um, surgery, with radiation uh, therapy, and um, which Dr. Rosenzweig will, will get into later. And, um, and also there are the uh, new generations of immunotherapies, including chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, so-called CAR T-cell immunotherapy, um, those are immune cells really uh, with genetically engineered receptors uh, really trying to target the specific cancer uh, and infused into the, uh, into the body by IV. Uh, and that's a new therapy that's only in clinical trials at the moment. And some oncolytic viruses that also can be injected in the clinical trial setting to rev up the immune system and, and to work uh, in combination with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, so those are very exciting, but it needs to be conducted, driven by, by very thorough uh, science, uh, uh, and, um, and this has to be done in a very well-controlled environment because uh, all therapies uh, can potentially be a double-edged sword. We can, can come in with all kinds of uh, side effects and toxicities when uh, we all need to be mindful of, and therefore any new therapy needs to be investigated in a clinical trial setting. And that's the safest approach. Um, and uh, and I think in I believe in the future um, uh, we're going to the refinement of precision medicine is going to be even even more detailed, so that we will uh, use the latest technology to characterize the tumor and the patient's profile to match the exact combination chemo immunotargeted therapy and map out a personalized treatment plan for very every single individual and that may be different from one patient to the next even if they all belong to the same cancer type so um, this is where dr. Wakeley already uh, touched upon briefly about the uh, the use of plasma uh, genetics uh, analysis uh, so-called liquid biopsy uh, where we can uh, over multiple time points, uh, really using non-invasive techniques, just simple, simply a blood draw or even a urine collection, to to understand the the, uh, the the genetic makeup of the cancer and its evolution over time, and to tailor our treatment uh, according to the status of the cancer at that particular time point. And it could be. Uh, a game changer in the future of precision medicine. So, so we need to really integrate all those exciting science uh, with immunotherapy to the precision medicine technology in molecular diagnostics, and and bring the very best deal for the for our patients. So that's an integrating genomics and proteomics. 
So this is undergoing intense research, and uh, I, I certainly uh, encourage every patient to speak to uh, their oncologist uh, about participation uh, in clinical trials. And Dr. Mesner also already mentioned uh, a few uh, resources uh, that you can go online and, and look for information, and also there's clinicaltrials.gov, uh, cancer.net, and, and uh, other resources you can you can go on to. Uh, to search um, uh, for particular clinical trials. Um, now, um, just going into the side effect part, no treatment is without side effects. So immunotherapy, though being different to chemotherapy, it still comes with its own set of potential toxicities and side effects. It's very important that uh, we are aware of it and, and be vigilant about it. Uh, it's important that you keep a uh, the patients keep a, a a very strong line of communication with the uh, the practice team, the physician, and and the nurse, um, or the clinical trial team uh, that uh, you report those side effects and and if if the um, uh, and if the uh, if you're suffering, uh, for example, a high fever uh, then uh, of 100.4 Fahrenheit, 38 degrees Celsius, while you're having uh, chemotherapy, for instance, you need to report that, uh, seek urgent medical attention on the same day. Um, so those are, those are very important. So immune therapies, as they activate your immune system, when, when it gets overactivated, it can potentially harm your normal organs, sort of inadvertently, as, it, as your immune system revs up to attack the cancer, it can actually injure the lungs and cause pneumonitis, difficulty breathing, injures the bowels, cause colitis, inflammation of the gut, causing uh, diarrhea. Uh, it may uh, damage inadvertently the liver, adrenals, all kinds of other organs, and, uh, and those need to be checked. So the regular visits to, the, uh, to your oncologist is, is very important, and that's why the, the purpose of the clinical trial is also to make sure that the safety is, is paramount uh, in the patient's treatment. Uh, patients need to be uh, keeping a well-balanced diet. Make sure that nutrition is is um, uh, is optimized. Uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. I would uh, encourage uh, natural food rather than uh, you know, 10, 20 bottles of supplements, uh, because every supplement or potential potential chemical active ingredients and compounds that may cause drug interactions. So um, I, I would. Uh, encourage maximizing nutrition just by uh, natural food, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and uh, encourage uh, daily exercises, walking 30 minutes a day as a mi at a minimum every single day. This way you, you optimize, you prime your body's uh, ability to, to fight the cancer and then receive the treatment. Um, and uh, it's and, and a lot of most side effects can be dealt with, uh, manageable. Um, so it's important that you keep a, a line of communication with your uh, with your treating team. And I will just close this section now. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dr. Lee. That was outstanding. Really excellent, and um, a, a lot of information for everybody. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So thank you so much. Our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. Dr. Rosenzweig is System Chair, Radiation Oncology, Mount Sinai, Beth Israel, Professor at the ICANN School of Medicine. And Dr. Rosenzweig is going to address the role of radiation oncology in treating lung cancer and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Rosenzweig. 
Hi, thank you. And thank you once again to Cancer Care and to Dr. Mesner for the opportunity to speak to everyone today. So radiation therapy is used in all aspects of the treatment of lung cancer, uh, whether the disease is caught in the very earliest stages, um, more advanced stages, or if it's spread outside of the lung. So when a lung cancer is in its very early stages, stage one, uh, the standard treatment is to cut the tumor out, to do a surgery, um, and that's always been uh, the main way we approach the tumors. But as you might imagine, a lot of people have a difficult time undergoing a major surgery in the chest, which, and which is what uh, lung cancer surgery would be. So for people who have trouble breathing or maybe have gone through surgery before or might have some issues with their heart, radiation therapy takes the place of the surgery to cure the cancer. Um, and over the past 15 years, some very exciting new techniques have developed in how we treat early stage lung cancer with radiation. Uh, so now we're able to do very, very targeted radiation. So the targeting is different from the targeted therapies uh, Dr. Wakeley and Lee were talking about. Here we're making sure we're aiming the radiation beam at the tumor target and we take uh, pictures and we monitor people's breathing uh, to make sure that we're hitting the tumor and avoiding the normal tissue. And the results of this new technique called stereotactic body radiation therapy, also called ablative radiation therapy, uh, have been phenomenal uh, with eliminating the cancer uh, as much as 90% of the time. And really almost the same results that we see from surgery uh, so this has been a, also a very exciting time in radiation oncology. And also a, a fantastic thing about it is that the treatment is much more convenient than the old-fashioned way of giving the radiation. We used to have the patient come in every day uh, for six to seven weeks to get the radiation. Now we do the treatment in just uh, three to five treatments. So people come in um, you know, typically every other day over the course of a week or a week and a half, uh, get the treatment, which takes about a half an hour, and go home afterwards. And I even had uh, one woman who I uh, was treating for her early-stage lung cancer who would just walk in to the clinic on her lunch break from work, get her treatment, and go back to work. So that was pretty uh, amazing that someone was, didn't even have to take uh, time off from their job to get their lung cancer treated. Um, so this has been a, really a radical change in how we uh, treat people. And in fact, there is some thought that it might be as good as surgery. So right now, right now, there are a number of clinical trials going on throughout the world where they're taking a group of people and essentially flipping a coin. If it's heads, uh, you get surgery. If it's tails, you get radiation. And we're going to see uh, who, does, who does better at the end. If the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes, which are in the center of the chest, uh, what well, as doctors call the mediastinum or mediastinal lymph nodes, then you can't do the very focused stereotactic radiation. It's just not safe to do it in the middle of the chest where all the important organs are, such as the trachea or the main breathing tube or the esophagus, the heart. Um, so in those situations, we, we still have to break the radiation up into a lot of smaller daily treatments over the course of six weeks. So back 30, 40 years ago, we used to just give radiation by itself, 
Uh, but over the past uh, few decades, we've learned that giving the radiation with chemotherapy helps a lot more, cures more people, and helps people live longer. So now it's definitely standard um, to give the radiation and the chemotherapy at the same time when the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. Unfortunately, uh, there, are, there are more side effects when you do the radiation and the chemotherapy at the same time. And probably the, the part of the body that's most affected is the esophagus or the food pipe. So it can get very difficult um, to swallow food. And one way I tell my patients to think about it, it's almost like there's a sunburn in the, in the, in the middle of your esophagus. So just as if you had a sunburn after a day at the beach, you wouldn't want to rub a toasted bagel across your skin. You probably don't want to swallow a toasted bagel either uh, because it would irritate um, your food pipe. So one thing that we do do to try to help people with uh, improve their, keep the nutrition sound and not to lose a lot of weight during treatment is to really focus on uh, what their weight is, if, um, to make sure they're well hydrated, to find softer foods to eat, um, and even if necessary, give them medici medicines to help with the swallowing, either gels that can numb up the esophagus to make a particular meal easier to swallow, or pain pills you know, uh, that they can take to really alleviate with the pain. So uh, w when you're doing radiation and chemotherapy at the same time, uh, there are a couple of weeks where the treatment can be uh, difficult because of the, the combination of the two. Uh, so also at this time, I want to talk about there are two types of lung cancer, uh, non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. And small cell, um, just as Dr. Wakeley was referring to, um, is also treated uh, with chemotherapy and radiation given at the same time. And it pretty much has the same side effects and the same type of treatment approach as the non-small cell lung cancer. So even though the diseases, the way they look under the microscope, cause them to act a little differently, um, in the end, the treatment tends to be about the same. Uh, a more rare use of radiation is sometimes after a lung surgery, uh, the surgeon might be concerned that there are some cancer cells left behind. So the scenario would be a surgeon cuts out a tumor and he, he or she cuts out the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest and sees some cancer there. And uh, when you're cutting out a, a tu any tumor anywhere in the body, you like to get a rim of normal tissue around it. Uh, but sometimes that's difficult to do in the middle of the chest uh, because, like I was talking about, you know, the important organs are around there, so you can't just cut willy-nilly through, through blood vessels and things like that. So the radiation can be a very effective way of killing any cells that are left behind. Uh, so it's unlike some of the other treatments that we do where we see an actual tumor and we can treat it and watch it shrink on scans afterwards. Here we're treating just the potential of there being some cells, and the radiation can be very effective uh, after a surgery to make sure the cancer doesn't come back in that spot. Uh, and finally, uh, we also give radiation very frequently when the tumor has spread outside of the body. Uh, so uh, the standard of care is chemotherapy, as both Dr. Lee and Dr. Wakeley were discussing, but sometimes there's a tumor that's pressing on a very 
uh, critical organ um, or causing a lot of pain and or causing neurologic problems. And uh, you want to give a very focused treatment to help allevi alleviate those symptoms and improve the quality of life of, of the person who's undergoing uh, these problems. And the radiation can be extremely effective for that. So similar to the early stage lung cancer, sometimes we give a very focused treatment just in one through three treatments to just a particular spot if it's causing a problem, or sometimes we spread it out over two weeks. It's very rarely given over more than two weeks uh, radiation for when the tumor has spread outside of the body. And also, um, as uh, Dr. Lee was talking about, there's been a lot of work right now trying to figure out how to combine immunotherapy with radiation. Because radiation, especially when you give it in a very large focused dose, uh, can send some dead cancer cells throughout the body and stimulate the body's immune system against the tumor and kill cancer in other parts of the body. And that's a very exciting thing to happen. And there are probably around 50 trials now in all types of cancer looking at this to see how we can harness the effect of radiation and, the, and how effective the immunotherapies have been and combine them together to help people. So I think there's going to be some very exciting news in the coming years about how those two treatment modalities work together. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was very excellent. And um, a lot of information about the role of radiation oncology and really all the details that really will be very helpful to everyone on the call. This is a very important part of the treatment of lung cancer. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden, and Ms. Burden is a supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Burden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, which is always of concern, I know, to everyone on the call. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing the nutritional concerns in the presence of lung cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key, not only to the tolerance to treatment, but nutrition provides you the energy to do the things you enjoy. A plant-based diet is the most ideal for prevention, during treatment, and survivorship. This translates into having about two-thirds of your plate um, come from a whole grain, fruit, vegetable, nut, or seed. Um, Plant-based foods provide us with antioxidants and phytochemicals. The other third of the plate should come from a lean protein. Lean proteins are things like wild-caught fish, poultry, and beans. Protein is the building block for healing, and it's important to get protein in your diet. Fresh or frozen vegetables are the best forms of plant-based foods, and incorporating a variety of colors is the other way you can ensure that you're in, taking in enough of the phytonutrients and antioxidants within your, within your diet. There may be a need for you to take a supplement due to your unique circumstances. Um, talking with your healthcare team will guide you into meeting whatever your unique needs are um, and then whatever supplement may or may not be appropriate um, during your care. There may be times in your treatments where you have to modify your diet due to the side effects. Um, so constant communication with your healthcare team 
related to your challenges will help you resolve the issues quickly or at least address them and um, let your healthcare team know if there's any changes in your, your plan of care that need to be made. Dehydration oftentimes um, can be overlooked, and when we're thinking about nutrition, sometimes we're just thinking about food that we're eating and the nutrition and calories and protein, but hydration is essential, and a lot of the treatments can um, require additional fluid intakings like radiation. Now, fluids are anything um, that's liquid at room temperature, and what I mean by that is if you set something out on the counter and you let it come to room temperature, and if it's liquid at that point, then it's considered a liquid. And these are things like water, juice, sports drinks, um, ice um, at room temperature, right, turns to water. So a general guideline for most people is they need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, being mindful of your hydration is important. And oftentimes um, we rely on the sensation of thirst. But if we're starting to feel thirsty, sometimes we can already be dehydrated. So um, making sure you're taking in the appropriate volume each day is important. So if you're experiencing side effects, um, a really helpful tool is to keep a daily food record. This can be really helpful, um, number one, to know how much you're eating and then what foods are really triggering your issues. Um, it'll also help your healthcare team better target how to help you. A dietitian can provide you with calorie needs, protein needs, fluid needs, and any diet modification um, recommendations and guidelines um, to meet your unique needs. But again, communicating with your healthcare team is the most important thing you can do. Um, each person is unique and each person's journey through their care is unique. And so um, listen to yourself and communicate with your team in order to meet your needs. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. Um, I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was wonderful. Um, actually, very, very um, helpful to everybody on the call. And really, the reminder to be about hydration is really important for everybody, <clears throat> particularly as we, on different parts of the world, of course, approaching warmer weather soon. In some parts of the country, um, or some parts of the world may be warm already, but hydration is really important, um, taking in fluids. And our next speaker is uh, Mr. Wynn Burkle. Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker, and he's our National Lung Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle is going to review Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my colleague, uh, Wynn. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm sure most of us remember the time when we moved into our first new home or even our last new home, and I'm sure most of us wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful new neighbor who helped us find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. You know, being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, cancer care serves in the role of that good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this strange new place. Here's how. 
Cancer Care's friendly website, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. These services include such things as education and a wide range of supportive assistance resources. Let's look at these services in a bit more detail. Cancer Care's educational programs reach out to include its array of Connect Education workshops, which provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, as well as informative workshops on diagnosis-specific cancer topics, such as today's presentation. Replays of these workshops are available online on your computer at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these workshop replays to their iPods and MP3 players. They can read them on the train or the bus when they're commuting. The education program also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. Over the years, we have distributed millions of these very popular publications. You know, while one is at our website, they can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care support services are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer. These issues may include assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions, assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to Cancer Care's Copay Assistance Foundation and other financial assistance resources, assistance with resource finding in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help lung cancer patients, assistance with navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in their health care, assistance with communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer Care Social Workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling face-to-face, or over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Hope Line at 1-800-813-HOPE-HOPE and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social worker as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups and online where people from across the country share concerns in professionally facilitated online support groups which are available 24-7 for participation. You know, our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they're experienced in face-to-face, online, or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress with others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. 
Group members share helpful tips and information on how best to cope with the experience of lung cancer. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family, which helps them live with lung cancer each day. The professional facilitator skills of Cancer Care's oncology social workers ensure that each support group is maintained as a special place for each and every member. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Wynne. That was wonderful, actually, very informative. And now everyone knows how to contact us and all the different resources for cancer care. And now we have time for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Some of you have already at, posed questions, but we want to give everybody a chance to pose their questions. We're going to ta- try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, I will give you resources at the end to get your questions answered. So, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, that's star one to ask a question. So um, we have um, a question from one of our online participants. Um, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Lee. Um, what is the best way to manage extreme fatigue that comes as a result of chemotherapy? If Dr. Lee would start with that question. That's a, that's a question that comes up on many of our calls, the issue of fatigue. Thank you. So this is a great question. It's it's very common problem uh, with chemotherapy uh, in particular. So uh, there there are different causes of fatigue. Uh, so there is cancer fatigue, and there is also treatment related fatigue, um, and uh, there are also psychological contributors to this. All of those need to be addressed. Uh, there are supportive uh, uh, non pharmacologic measures, so non drug measures that we can uh, uh, use, in, including just simple. Uh, uh, and when you feel very tired, it's it's very uh, hard to get out and exercise and and all that. But it's it's still important just to keep uh, walking uh, 30 minutes a day, uh, just breathe some fresh air, and to have adequate nutrition, stay hydrated. And what was mentioned earlier, very very important topic, and um, and and just keep yourself uh, nutritionally optimized. Now the next step uh, would be uh, to uh, uh, seek um, uh, support uh, and, and from the physician. And sometimes uh, I ask my patients uh, when during the uh, firstly what type of chemotherapy and, and during when during the chemotherapy does the fatigue come in on which day to which day. And if it's a, if it happens uh, straight after the, um, uh, the the completion of the steroid uh, pre medication uh, such as dexamethasone for three days and then on day four there's a crashing feeling of fatigue couldn't get out of bed and it's just a totally total difference on day four and five as opposed to the first three days of chemotherapy uh, this could be just a, a effect uh, uh, from the abrupt cessation of abrupt stopping of corticosteroids. Uh, the way to manage this is to taper the steroids slowly rather than abruptly and to modify the doses. So do talk to your to your oncologist uh, about this. Some of these can be easily uh, alleviated and, and, and taken away. Um, 
And of course, sometimes the uh, the chemotherapy uh, does uh, cause uh, very uh, in, uh, really intolerable fatigue, and uh, this may be uh, driven by anemia because of the uh, mild bone marrow suppression from the chemotherapy, or bone marrow stops producing or or slows down its production of red cells, and then you don't have the uh, red cells to carry the oxygen for you and you're very fatigued. And then in some cases I do transfuse uh, blood uh, in patients just to uh, to get the hemoglobin uh, uh, up to a, a better level. So uh, these need to be watched uh, very closely uh, by the treating oncologist in the clinic and certainly uh, bring up uh, all of uh, those uh, with, the, uh, with the oncologist. And there are other... Uh, uh, simple um, uh, pharmacological measures. There, there are some medicines that can help uh, stimulate the uh, the appetite, um, and, and and they don't work for everybody. And, and some work wonders for some some patients, and and others uh, just need to think of alternative strategies. So uh, I've tried different uh, different uh, uh, drugs in this, in, including megase, uh, which is an appetite stimulant in some patients. Uh, low-dose corticosteroids for a brief period of time uh, tend to work for others, um, uh, and, and, uh, and so so there are various ways um, uh, to look into this. So it has to be personalized and really warrants a, a formal office consultation with the oncologist to address all of the above-mentioned factors. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Very comprehensive answer. Um, question for Dr. Wakeley. Uh, another question. Um, is there an official definition for when the term no evidence of disease or NED is used? Does it have a time component? So that's a, a, a great question. Um, we use that term no evidence of disease really when looking at a scan um, as well as looking and doing a physical exam. And if neither the scan nor the exam show us any evidence of active cancer, we will say that. That can be said at any time, though. There's not a time component. We use the time component more when we're talking about when does no evidence of disease equal cure, and there there needs to be a, a period of time when we usually say five years before we would use the word cure in that setting of no evidence of disease. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question, um, and I'm going to give this question to uh, Dr. Lee. Um, I've read that 15% ALK was the definitive amount making people ALKies. My question is, is there a correlation between percent of ALK and effectiveness of targeted meds? If the percent is higher, does it mean that TKI will work longer? Um, Dr. Lee, if you could address this in a general way. Uh, Dr. Messner, can you repeat the first part of yes. this, this question yes. regarding the percentage? Uh, is this referring I'll to... Actually, uh, I'll repeat the whole thing in case it's not clear. Yeah. So I've read that 15% ALK was the definitive amount making people ALKs. My question is, is there a correlation between percentage of ALK and effectiveness of targeted meds, medications? If the percent is higher, does it mean the TKI will work longer? Complicated question. 
Yeah, so, um, so okay, so I think this is referring to uh, an oncogenic driver by the name of uh, ALK, uh, ALK fusions, and it's really the presence of the this gene fusion, uh, and the, the partners often EML4 uh, and ALK, so the two genes are fused together, produce an oncoprotein that drives the uh, growth of this this tumor in an uncontrolled fashion. There is a drug called, uh, there are a number of drugs, uh, ALK inhibitors, also called TKIs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors against ALK, that fits into the pocket of this fusion and basically stops the, uh, switches off the signal and causes cancer cells to die. Um, it's really the presence of this gene fusion as the driver rather than the percentage uh, in any form or shape that determines the effectiveness of the um, uh, the ALK targeted therapy. So, um, uh, if you, I also do uh, understand these days, uh, and there are uh, different ways to te test ALK. So, uh, there's, there's the traditional way of doing fluorescence uh, in situ hybridization, there's uh, the immunohistochemistry. Um, uh, those usually give you a binary. Uh, Sort of answer. It's it's fusion positive or fusion negative. Uh, when you get into uh, um, liquid biopsies using uh, plasma next generation sequencing to look for this these fusions, uh, one may get a a percentage uh, known as the variant allele frequency, and this may come in a, in a percentage. And the percentage. Um, is really the the percentage of um, DNA, DNA fragments of the mutant or the fusion type versus the normal type, the wild type, and and that percentage is somewhat uh, uh, related, uh, although not always, uh, to tumor burden, um, and and it's also uh, affected by shedding kinetics and tumor purity. So it's very very complicated, and this is an evolving science. The um, the percentage correlation of the percentage, if it's referring to variant allele frequency, to the effectiveness of targeted therapy has not been uh, uh, conclusively looked at uh, in, in, in clinical trials. I am currently doing several studies in liquid biopsies, and this is one of the questions uh, being looked at. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure if the uh, uh, if this was what the uh, uh, the audience member was was referring to. Uh, Carolyn, this is Heather. I, yeah. Yeah. Can I, I just wanted to add, so I, I think um, the way I interpreted the question was um, with the traditional testing, the fish testing, um, the break apart fish, the historical has been that 15% number. So I think that might maybe was what they were referring to. Mm. Um, and I just want to echo what um, Dr. Lee was saying, just that, um, you know, the testing is very, very complex. Um, and more than once, we've had patients where one type of testing for ALK was, or any of the other drivers, was negative. And then on repeat testing, especially with the more sensitive next-gen sequencing ways of testing, we can find it. Um, but as he was also saying, um, sort of the however you find it and whatever those levels are don't necessarily tell us how long the drugs are going to work or, or how likely they are. So it's it's very, very complex. Um, and again, just something for each case to be talked about in detail. So actually to go back to treating healthcare team would be a good idea for this particular or for anyone with these mm -hmm. questions. Um, but this is very helpful. 
both what you and Dr. Lee have said because it's very helpful. Dr. Wakeley and Dr. Lee have been very helpful just in explaining it, and uh, thank you. Um, we do have one other question before we, late breaking question before we actually um, bail ask question. Um, and for Dr. Wakeley, um, so the question is at stage four adenocarcinoma, is treatment considered palliative or can the cancer go into remission? And also, if you could define palliative, Dr. Um, um, Wakeley, just because people have different definitions. And uh, Sure. So uh, there are a lot of definition, definitions there. With um, the current treatments we know of today, and Dr. Lee mentioned this as well, we don't have a way to cure stage four lung cancer uh, in a consistent way. Now, there are patients who live many, many years with stage four disease, and some of them no longer have disease that we can see on scans. We'd like that to be a very, very large percentage. So far, it's not, but that's where things are moving forward. Palliative can be, have many definitions. Really, it means focusing on a patient's symptoms and helping people feel better. And so for all patients with lung cancer, that's always a, a key focus is helping people. I always talk about it um, as I, I'm, my goal is to help people live as long as possible, feeling as well as possible. And ideally, we're doing both of those things at the same time. Sometimes we have to focus just on the symptom management, um, but we're always trying to ideally do both together. That's excellent. Um, thank you. I hope that's helpful to everyone on the call with these questions because that's really the goal here. That, thank you for saying that. And there is one, actually, there is one more late breaking question. <laughs> Dr. Lee or Dr. Dr. Wakeley, if you would address this, they're asking what specific foods should they be avoided during, and I assume it's during cancer treatment or with lung cancer. Is there any, any specific foods to be avoided? Uh, so I'll just jump into that. So with some of the pill drugs, that, um, the targeted medications that the, the patients who have the specific driver mutations like EGFR or ALK might have, grapefruit actually interferes, but other foods don't specifically. I advise my patients who are on chemotherapy where there are some, the neutrophil counts, which are the, some of the infection-fighting cells might be low, to avoid raw meats and fish. Uh, particularly during the times when the counts might be low, but otherwise it's really a, a focus on just eating healthy, well, you know, eating well, eating healthy food. I, I, we've heard a couple of different different definitions of that on the call today, but there aren't any foods to specifically be avoided. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Wow, fantastic. Well, this has been a, an amazing call. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. It's just really excellent. This has been really one of, uh, just an amazing call. And I want to thank um, our speakers. I also want to thank those of you who've asked such really great questions online. They're excellent questions. We do ask you then to take your questions with the information you got and bring it back to your treating healthcare team, of course. We, um, the program is intended to provide information, um, and but not to not to take away from your communication with your own healthcare team. Now, for any of you who still have medical questions that you did not get answered today, because I know there are some of you who still have those questions, I do advise you, of course, your healthcare team, of course, but many of you do like to get information before you approach your healthcare team. And so if some of you are like that, I would suggest you contact the National Cancer Institute at one 800 422-6237, or visit their website at www.cancer.gov. 
the nice thing about their website is it has a live chat feature, which is really quite terrific. And you can post your question, which is nice for people in the U.S. and internationally. You can post your question, and one of the information specialists will come on, and you can have a chat back and forth with getting your questions answered or addressed with giving you information, which you still, of course, have to bring back to your treating healthcare team since they do have all your records and everything. Um, in addition, we did mention resources earlier today and during the program, and we will also resend to you all those resources um, and when you, we are going to send you all an evaluation of the program. So you'll be getting all these resources and, and, uh, so that you all have additional places to contact um, in addition to Cancer Care. Now, in addition, if those of you on the call are particularly interested in uh, uh, getting financial assistance or practical help or counseling services or joining a support group, um, either a telephone or online support group, or just having a social worker, an oncology social worker to talk to, you may have one on your healthcare team, but if you'd like to supplement that, you certainly can call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Org, and our oncology social workers will actually address your questions. They'll either talk to you on the phone or they will, uh, online, they will talk with you and see if we can't help you with whatever questions or concerns you may have and provide you support you need um, to resolve your questions and issues. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. You're here um, and you can contact Cancer Care at any time. And we're also providing you other resources as well so that you really can feel um, armored to actually get your questions answered. And of course, um, and never to forget your healthcare team as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to remind you that there is a part um, two to this program. And this, this part two focuses on caregivers, although people living with cancer are most invited to come as well. But it's for caregivers practical tips to cope with your loved one's lung cancer. And it also includes, of course, government funds own lung cancer. So I would definitely recommend for those of you who haven't already signed up for that, that will be part two, and it's on June 13th. So again, um, wish you all a fine day, and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.